From Washington, this is the HPS Macrocast with Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners. Good morning. It's Friday, September 4th. You're listening to the HPS Macrocast and you're listening on a big jobs day, non-farm payroll Friday. Uh, We have our regulars, John Fagan, Brendan Walsh with Markets Policy Partners. And as always on every jobs day, uh, the great Matt McDonald is with us from Hamilton Place Strategies. Uh, and I'm Tony Fratto. Matt, what do the numbers tell us? I think there's, like, there's, some in, there's a little bit of intrigue in the numbers today, isn't there? There's always intrigue in the numbers. You just Sometimes you have to squint harder than others. The, the numbers are good today. Um, non-farm payroll rose by 1.4 million in August, and the unemployment rate fell to 8.4%. Um, and just to put, you know, just to put those in a little bit of context, the the 1.4 million increase is, I would say is strong, is kind of, you're getting a little bit of, I don't know what you'd call it, a little bit of diminishing returns on the back end. We had a, a sharp bump, like June numbers were, what, 4.8 million, July is 1.7, now August is 1.4, so that makes sense. You're obviously not going to get as big a spike as you go on, but, um, but a really strong number in the, the uh, 8.4% unemployment is kind of a, uh, what would you call that? Like a normal elevated unemployment rate? Like it's not, it's not good, but it's not like pandemic, crazy mid teens kind of thing. That was the discussion previously. So that's back into the range of like really bad, recession numbers yeah right. yeah like bad bad recession but not like generational pandemic right. depression type yeah and, and the most interesting uh data point i saw from the household survey that's the one that the unemployment rate is done yes so so much of the improvement was people that were laid off for five to 14 weeks so two million people yes. came back but unfortunately for people that have been laid off for 15 to 26 weeks only thirty-three thousand came back yes so it seems yes. like we're, we're really getting this K-shaped where people that were genuinely out of work because, you know, it shut down and now you reopen, those people are back to work. But there does seem to be a, a large chunk of the economy that just isn't coming back to work. And that's um, and there's parts of that that are borne out, I would say, in the industry breakdown, too. So if you mm-hmm. look at kind of where that 1.4 came, you had a, you had a quarter million jobs added in retail. Um, professional and business services was about 200,000 leisure and hospitality was 175,000 added, um, education, education and health services is still down a lot, but that added 150,000 warehousing was up 80,000, which, uh, those could be permanent new jobs that are being created rather than replacement. Um, but so you do have a little bit of, uh, you know, I guess the question on some of this stuff is that we, it feels like the job market continues to kind of pluck the low-hanging fruit of, okay, this job went away, this job is coming back. And, you know, we're, we're the question, I think, is that not all the jobs are going to come back. Yep. And what does that look like? When do we hit that point where you start getting, you know, you start getting like the the harder work on restoring the economy? And I think that the from a policymaker perspective, some of the danger on this, and this is where you see certainly conversations of what we saw from the Fed in 
I guess it's Jackson Hole, but not yeah. Jackson Hole, whatever. Um, but we anyway, got to, to attend Jackson Hole this week. This year, so <laughs> it was much more. It was better for us, I guess. Kansas City um, Symposium. Macro yeah. So, so I guess the question is, you know, what? Assuming that you're getting, you know, you're going to get some some um, dead cat bounce on some of this stuff is what are the policy choices that you make now yeah. to ensure that the recovery is as deep as the crash? And right? I think that when you look at the wage, uh, average hourly earnings, it was, it was a pretty big uh, surprise to the upside, 0.4. But unfortunately, I think it's a little, it's good and bad. I think the reason that it was a surprise is because higher paying jobs are coming back to work, but the low paying jobs just aren't. Um, and it, it's the reality, you know, restaurants, uh, movie theaters are just not open. So- <laughs> That's where the Fed needs to, it's Main Street. And we've talked a million times about Main Street lending. Um, you know, people, it, well, also within this report, you know, about 30 million people were able to work remote, but 24 million people weren't able to, to get a job or attend to have their jobs cut because they weren't able to go to the office. One other, um, one other big segment of like, you know, supported, in fact, I, I would look, um, I think the numbers, if you had them up, it's around a quarter of, job creation and the support came from government, including a couple hundred thousand census workers. Yeah, you, you kind of got to back out the, the census workers. That's a, that's a one-time deal. <laughs> so like the, the couple hundred thousand census workers are a one-time deal. They're going to roll back off in a few months. But it's not really a one-time deal. It does happen every 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> uh, short-term employment. Uh, they're they're going to roll back off government payrolls pretty soon. And a big chunk of those government workers, it's not like government was creating new jobs. Those were certainly the other, the other uh, public sector jobs um, were back to work jobs. I think, I think public sector is still shedding uh, jobs overall on a, net, um, uh, on, a, well, on a net basis, or at least, I'm sorry, not on a net basis, but going back to pre-COVID days, you're still, you know, government is still significantly down. So. So you're not going to get that government boost. August is the last month um, where I think you can feel, you know, confident so far that we've had, you know, significant fiscal support. Um, you know, uh, we're going to see a gap here in September. So the numbers for September, when we get to the first week of October, a month from now, and look back at September, it'll be really interesting. We've seen a number of high-profile layoffs. We're still seeing very elevated, as we saw yesterday in Maybe we could talk about uh, uh, weekly claims, uh, which we had, um, you know, a change in the uh, methodology, yeah. uh, which we could talk about. But, um, you know, so the, the, the headline number, if you weren't aware of the methodology changed last week for weekly claims, looked good. It was actually a bad number. Uh, very bad. Yeah. Very, very bad number on, uh, on weekly claims. So, you know, so, so I think like, you know, we have this snapshot of August, which is uh, with, you know, really substantial monetary support, unprecedented fiscal support, the end of unprecedented fiscal support. But now we are, um, we are in the, you know, we're in the September period where the, uh, the fiscal support has run out. Maybe monetary support has run its course. We yeah. are seeing the economy, you know, I mean, we're, we are seeing, in fact, back to work in a lot of places. There is a lot of back to work in retail and leisure and hospitality um, uh, that has come back since, you know, in the May, June, July period. Like some of that is real. It's not, uh, there's no fakery going on there. It's real. 
Um, some manufacturing has come back. Um, you know, people have been able to source some supply and start making some stuff and selling some stuff. So, so some of that's real. But to, to, to what you guys talked about earlier, the question is always going to be not whether there's some comeback, but at what level are we going to settle into absent more fiscal support uh, and absent solving the health crisis? And I think yeah. that's the that's the question really at the heart of the market response. I mean, we've this is the fifth straight month of upside surprise, and and a lot of them have been pretty meaningful upside surprises. This was a little bit more subtle, but uh, but but uh, a significant beat on the unemployment rate this time. We've seen really strong. Uh, non-farm payrolls. This is the most market moving of all, traditionally the most market moving of all U.S. economic readings. And where you would typically see these, uh, the, the reactions in longer dated treasury yields to these upside surprises, lifting those yields, boosting the dollar, boy, those, those are, the reactions are absolutely muted. They are not giving Either there's something else in play and you can, you know, everybody points fingers at the Fed and the, the generous liquidity provisions anesthetizing these markets to some extent. Uh, that's, that's possible and there are other factors in play, but on face value, you know, these financial markets are not giving these better than expected pieces of U.S. economic data, including the non-farm payrolls, a lot of credit. Um, and there's a sense that uh, you know, the Fed and the Fed has Fed officials have been absolutely unanimous on this front, which is, you know, this, this is a rebound, uh, but it's the pace is leveling off and we have very little clarity on uh, on the months ahead. So, uh, so there's, there's a there's a degree of caution and certainly the shift in the in the Fed's thinking and the and the thinking around the country to focus on, you know, to drill down and look at the lower income uh, and uh, the racial breakdown of these kind of numbers, you know, those obviously, you know, unsurprisingly don't look as good as you get down into, uh, you know, black and African-American unemployment rates um, and some of the other things that the Fed is, you know, and, and uh, workers without a high school diploma, for instance, things that the Fed is increasingly and, and the rest of us are increasingly focused on um, because of events this year. I, I also think, Tony, you made a good point about, there's been a lot of high profile layoff announcements coming. And I think a lot of that has to do with the, the, the PPP loans run out in September. And also it looks like we're also going to have a, a, you know, a cliff of the other support that's coming. So, you know, maybe the market's looking forward that, you know, the, the fall is not going to be quite as, um, quite as good in terms of uh, the jobs market as the, the summer has been. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, you know, We'll see. Right. I mean, uh, we're going to get like, you know, um, you know, the, que the question is how much how much of a handoff is there to the private sector? Um, the permanent uh, map, if you look at like, uh, I mean, we, we saw workforce participation. Uh, I mean, Brendan talked about the, yeah. the long term, the long -term uh, unemployed, which you know, our, our, our friend, uh, the economist uh, Martha Gable uh, has a chart out on Twitter showing um, that like, you know, the, the, the numbers of people in that group of that long-term unemployed really are, you know, if we, if we talk about 8.4% being, you know, in that normal range of a recession through long-term unemployed uh, number, people 15 to 26 weeks is unprecedentedly high. And, and the thing that, she, you know, she always harps on and, and we're aware of from the previous two recessions is that the, you know, the longer, 
you stay long-term unemployed, the harder you are, the harder it is for you to get a job in the future. You just become less attractive to employers. So a a year ago, it was uh, 831,000 people were 15 to 26 weeks. Now we're at 6.5 million. And then 27 weeks and over, um, we're at 1.6 million. That does, that's, um, that's a good point, Tony. And then the other, the other two aspects of the related conversation that you will 100% hear about in the coming year is the impact of graduating into an economic environment like this and the lasting damage it does to someone's career path prospects. And the second dynamic that you will see, which, uh, which has some unique aspects is actually for, um, older workers who've been laid off and are between 55 and 65 and caught in that no man's land of like, nobody's really excited to hire them for like the long term when they're going to retire and that sort of stuff. You know, we're in a really weird spot for that particular population because of the proximity we are to kind of the last of the baby boomer retirements. Yeah. And we also I mean, know that could that be they a large saved. group that is impacted. Yeah. That group, that 55 to 65 really needs to keep working because they, they haven't saved for retirement. Yeah. I guess that's a, that's a, n- a nice opportunity to um, just note that uh, HPS is, um, is, is, <laughs> All recruiting for associates and analysts for HPS leadership program. You can find the link on our website for, uh, to apply, uh, if you are a, uh, senior in one of America's great colleges right now. I was at the, uh, mail at the office the other day. So when we do finally go back to the office, it is a pretty cool office to work in. (laughs) Someday we'll be back. We're going to have cocktails on the porch. One, you know, one, one interesting aspect is whether of this is, is you have kind of the, we've talked about the Fed support. We've talked about the, um, the fiscal support. It will be interesting to see whether the actual conclusion of the pandemic is kind of gradual or a shock. Um, you know, it could, it could come in the form of, look, there could be a, a tough second wave. It could come in the form of some of the rapid iteration testing that's out there could, could actually really impact the ability to contain the virus, or it could come in the form of a vaccine, you know, and it, it will be interesting to see how that intersects with the economy and what, what that looks like. Cause the, um, I could see it in a scenario where if that, if that comes as a shock, it would have a positive economic shock as well, which I'm not sure it's something to, to bank on, but it'll be interesting to see how the eventual end of the pandemic intersects with, with okay. the job market that's, and the that's a really, generally. That's a really interesting point. And we've talked about that from a financial market perspective, and we'll talk a little bit more about it when we get into the sell-off. But uh, the Fed is, you know, is pivoting clearly in a, the, the messaging about uh, their reformulation of their, their inflation targeting and also their unemployment mandate. Uh, to focus on lower income echelons is about in in part in about in about delinking their policy going forward uh, from public health outcomes. I mean, you could easily see a formulation where the Fed could reasonably say, "Hey, once a vaccine is out and reasonably viable, you know, the market needs to be on notice that the next move is is going to be incremental tightening or withdrawal of the stimulus, normalization." And that is not what the Fed is saying. The Fed is saying that, you know, it's, it's trying to deaden that potential 
for a shock to the treasury markets or, you know, the dollar or whatever it is, markets in general, to what you're saying, Matt, which is, you know, on the day we <laughs> hopefully that, that it's coming soon when we wake up and see an announcement of very successful vaccine trials by AstraZeneca or Moderna or one of the others, that the markets aren't lurching and, and, and disorderly in a, in a massive reset well, back to it, normalcy. It has this quality, you know, very early on when we were discussing this, we were talking about the way that the economic policy responses to this stuff was building a bridge so that you can insulate the economy as best you can from the pandemic, et cetera. The thing is that it's, it's building a bridge where you don't know where the other shore is. Yeah. You're just out in the middle of whatever, whatever the body of water is. You just keep building the bridge and you don't know where, where it's going to land. And like, you know, there, the, it's very difficult to, to figure out what the optimal outcome is what the end looks like, how you think about that, how you manage through that when you really, when you, when the variability of kind of the length of time is, is high. Yeah. So that, that, right. So, but you do have to keep building the bridge until you know you're, in fact, you're there. And then, yes. but that's the, you know, that's the challenge to the fed. The fed could, the fed could tie it to anticipated um, health events but they certainly do not want to, you know, encourage the market to anticipate that event, right? If you're like, they don't want to say, um, they don't want to say definitively that, you know, if, if a vaccine comes, we're withdrawing monetary support because market smartly would summon market participants try to get ahead of that. And it becomes, you know, you, so you start, you, you start causing, you know, um, negative economic events in anticipation of what might be a, a policy event. And, and, and for the, the challenge for the Fed is that the health outcomes and the efficacy of any of the vaccines or uh, treatments is uncertain, you know? So just because there's some, you know, big announcement and the media goes wild with it, the media has, you know, little consequence if two months later we find out that it's not as effective a vaccine as we thought it was going to be. Right. And so, and, you know, or the, or the, um, the virus has mutated. And, right. I mean, and the, but the fed has to be hundred percent certain. And by the way, they just changed their policy stance anyway to say that, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, at least well, have they, but they've indicated they're going to be more, dovish. we think they're going to be more dovish. Um, well, I do want to get into, uh, where, you know, where we think like, you know, how markets are, uh, are anticipating this news. We had a, uh, you know, we had a big sell off. Why don't we take a break here, come back and just dive into how, uh, how markets are, uh, interpreting health news and, uh, and official data. We'll be right back on the macrocast. On the first Friday of every month, HBS analyzes the latest jobs and labor market data in a digestible format. Sign up for our reports at HamiltonPlaceStrategies.com or on Twitter at HPS Insight. And we're back on the macrocast. Uh, John Fagan, uh, you know, we had a big sell-off yesterday, um, you know, after sort of an unprecedented, uh, you know, run in equity markets, um, but we had, a, you know, big Sell I think at one point we're down more than a thousand points in the Dow. Um, what are what 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 is what are markets seeing right now? 
Well, the uh, the formulation that you put together, unprecedented run and sharp sell-off, do tend to go together in, uh, in in equity land. And so, it was to some extent the you know the commentary from the investment community was, gosh, this was overdue. Uh, these stocks were pretty ridiculously overbought. They were you know just on a rocket ship to the moon for so long. They have uh, you know outperformed dramatically the rest of the index by whatever metric you want to say. The uh, the the tech led rally has been absolutely astonishing, and uh, and so in these circumstances, it's generally speaking, it's pretty common to have resets, even if you don't. The, the correction is uh, you know roughly around ten percent. And, uh, you know, only only the very worst performers really got anything close to an actual correction. But this is corrective activity. It's considered healthy. Uh, it's, it was long overdue to some extent. It's coming at a time, you know, the Thursday before Labor Day weekend when liquidity is probably not at its most uh, optimal and, uh, and not <laughs> the desks, the trading desks and so forth are underpopulated. And, uh, and you also have, you know, the, so the, there is sort of a technical element to it uh, that, uh, that, that is perhaps comforting to, uh, to analysts. We're, we're also focused on the fact that we have seen setbacks for, uh, for tech, and they have coincided in uh, recent months with vaccine-related announcements. And if there, you know, there is a logical symmetry here in which the winners of the pandemic, like big tech and some of the other prominent, uh, you know, if you're talking about Netflix or Zoom or Amazon, um, even Walmart, some of the, uh, the, the large uh, retailers that are benefiting from the closure of smaller stores um, and, uh, and their online presence growing and so forth. If you accept the premise that the pandemic has been very, very good relatively for these stocks, then, you know, by, by that logic, then perhaps uh, the outlook for viable vaccine in the coming months undermines their comparative advantage versus the rest of the index. And so you get this rotational aspect where people take profits on their high-flying pandemic winter tech stocks and go into the traditional economy. But, uh, but as, you know, we've discussed on this podcast before, tech has gotten so dominant in these indexes that it's very hard for you know, traditionally like a rotation, if you're selling out of one uh, part of the stock market and just buying into another, there tends to be stability at the index level. But these stocks are just so massive and such huge portions of the, of the index. And, you know, you can make the argument that the, that the value stocks, the traditional economy stocks that have been lagging have been lagging for a reason because the, you know, the economic outlook uh, is, is pretty cloudy. It makes, it, it makes these rotations relatively unstable. And so we see big, chunky moves at, that bring, you know, in, in tech stocks like yesterday that bring down the entire index. Um, and, uh, and it's, you know, we, we've, we're seeing a little bit of a bounce today. You know, tech has been very, uh, very resilient. And, uh, and, and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how it plays out. But, you know, we think that if, if there is a vaccine that is going to be announced over the next few months, that really is a potential game changer and it can change some of these prominent market dynamics that have prevailed through the pandemic. If you're buying those, if you, if you bought up those stocks over this time, first off, if you, if you bought them anticipating, you know, uh, changes in the economy over a period of two or three or four quarters, then you're just an idiot, right? I mean, that's too short term to, 
I mean, you could trade. I mean, trading is one thing, but if you're investing, if you're investing in those stocks, what you're imagining is that um, you have shifted forward the share of economic activity that they are going to capture for the long term, not for just over some period of months when a vaccine comes back, right? I'm not, this isn't like, if you're talking about um, AMC movie theaters, that's one thing, but what you're, you're, you're interested in Netflix is that uh, consumers have changed their viewing patterns. They had, the, they, were, they had the forced opportunity to enjoy Netflix content uh, over the past five months and to a greater degree than before, they're hooked on it, you know? So I'm not saying that people aren't gonna go to the movies anymore. They're just gonna go marginally less to the movies, marginally more to Netflix. That's your long-term play with Netflix, right? So- Yeah, that's the fundamental basis for it. But the extent to which momentum has taken over and taken, you know, taken that story and really, you know, really run with it to some, some extremes, that's where the argument, that's where the, argu the debate really lies. You know, has too much of that shift really been priced in? Is the outperformance over, uh, you know, of tech stocks, you know, this is, a, you know, when you go down and look at, at the, uh, at the gains per year, if you look, you know, Facebook is up, is up, you know, 40 plus percent, Amazon up 82%, Tesla, Tesla is up after this pretty chunky sell off this week is up almost 390% on the year still. Yeah. I mean, these are, these are, and, you know, great, Banks like JP, JP Morgan stock is still down on the order of 30% on the year. Elon this is, is definitely getting his cat. compensation marks. No, this I mean, a, I guess yawning a good cat. example. Yeah, my, going into it, my two largest holdings were Tesla and PayPal. For that reason, I just thought that they're the big winners in the world. And then also the pandemic happened. I'm not defending. I think the valuations are getting silly now, but I still like the company. Yeah, well, if, you're, if you are, if, again, the difference between trading and investing. If you're if you're an investor, you like the company and you like its long term. You know what, what this has done for it long term, right? Yeah, but it's not a bad time to take some profits. And I mean, the other theory on this stuff is that is that the pandemic is inducing fundamental behavioral changes. Yeah, right? and it's interesting. I don't think anybody really knows the answer to that. I think that the I think it's a little of both. I mean, like I think that people are at once like when it is over are going to be manic to get out and see other people and be among crowds and the things that we once took for granted. Um you know, but the the technological adaptation and adoption that has happened in many respects is some of these things are overdue candidly that that the technology existed. We just didn't have the, you know, we, we didn't have a giant natural experiment to really adopt and see what would work and what wouldn't work. And so I do think that there will be, I mean, there are going to be, there's going to be some reversions and there are going to be some serious behavioral changes that, that will impact some of these companies. It's really important. Work. Like we were talking about the, the bridge, you know, when we get there, our behavior is going to be slightly different. I'm, I'm really excited to go to Buffalo Wild Wings and watch a football game but I'm not excited to get back on a plane and fly six hours for an hour meeting, you know? That's a basic question. They were like, look, if, if uh, almost by definition, if there are a lot of uh, companies out there that are overbought, there are a lot of companies out there that are underbought too, right? Yep. A lot so like maybe it is Buffalo Wild Wings and Macy's and whatever. Like, should you be buying those companies right now? Anticipate well, 18 months from now, actually, they're going to be like you know they're they're undervalued right now and they're probably good good buys. I mean, unless 
they're goodbyes because they're goodbye. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's yeah. The the market can't seem to get all that comfortable with the uh, you know with the with what what we call the value stocks, the real economy stocks. It's a little bit. It, the the rotations that we've seen from tech into real economy seem to be pretty brief and uh and the process of elimination uh, investors seem to get you know be only able to digest a certain amount of uh, increase in exposure to the real economy stocks with the kind of you know difficult outlook and and challenging you know cloudy crystal ball we have for growth we also have the election coming up which is you know which is a meaningful period of uncertainty uh, for markets. And so there's a, you know, there's a sense of, you know, at, at, at some point ringing the cash register, playing a little bit of defense and trying to, you know, and trying to see if you get some clarity, um, you know, past some of these major uncertain points coming into year end. That's a, that's a reasonable stance for investors to be taking. You know what, we have a, we, we have a, uh, an HBS report out, um, on uh, you know on volatility or that we're working on on vol- you know volatility and elections, which is to say, actually there isn't a whole lot of volatility associated with elections. A lot more perceived and talking the you know chatter about increases in volatility leading up to election day. It's actually just not borne out very much in the data. Um, I, I I I can't wait to read that report because we we make such a big deal about who's going to be president, blah blah blah. The, the stock market actually does better under Democrats than Republicans, but only slightly. Like. Everyone freaks out about it, but in the end, like we're a huge economy, you, policy can move it a little one way or the other, but we just kind of chug along. Yeah, I mean, when you look at this year's election, obviously there's a there's a pretty you know stark disparity between the economic policies of the two candidates. There's no question about it. In a typical uh, in a typical election, you would have you know a fair amount of uh, you know you'd have a fair amount of commentary from Wall Street talking about how much of a you know how much of a drag on the stock market. Um, Joe Biden's tax plan would be and so forth. Uh, but this is no ordinary uh, election. This is no ordinary time. You know, certainly the outcomes of uh, the, the potential for a vaccine and, and the public health outcomes really are going to swamp the differences uh, between the uh, the two candidates' economic policies. You also have a Fed going into this election in ultra accommodative mode and telling you that it is going to stay that way well past the election. So that is a deadening uh, uh, that that's that's a, a factor that tends to deaden volatility, uh, but and it really looks stands out that the real risk factor when you talk with uh, market participants and our clients is not about the outcome of the election. It's the that's the process, the validity and the uh, the clarity of the process and the result is the big risk factor that you know they haven't had to contend with really in previous elections, uh, but that that's the number one concern around this one. I'd love to come back um, and maybe maybe in one of the next uh, couple shows um, to have that conversation about just like what, what, you know, what we think expectations are for how the election will play out and what will be perceived. And, and also just the way people think about it, where you have this, you have this, you know, weird situation where, uh, you know, if, if you, I think if you spoke to most, you know, most businesses, you know, they're happy with low taxes and light touch regulation at the same time, they're not happy about the, you know, uh, the, the policy volatility and rhetorical volatility that goes along with the Trump presidency, but they like the low taxes and low regulation. They may not be, you know, very excited about, um, you know, a Biden uh, push for, you know, higher taxes and re-regulation, 
but there is some comfort in that you're not going to, you know, you're not going to have this worry about day to day that the president of the United States is going to be, you know, calling you out on Twitter and, um, and randomly, um, you know, throwing, uh, you know, trade protection roadblocks yep. in your way. Well, we saw last night, the DOJ is rushing a, a case against Google, yeah. even though all their lawyers say we're not ready. Yeah. So that's like, so, you know, so yeah, let's, it would be a fascinating show and we'll do it. And Matt, I'd love for you to come and join on that. Maybe we can get, um, you know, uh, uh, have a guest on to help talk through that a little bit too, but why don't we take a break here and come back and um, uh, get into our last segment. You're listening to the Macrocast. Check out HPS Insights, a regular podcast from Hamilton Place Strategies, bringing you the latest on policy debates affecting the business and political communities. Available on your favorite streaming platforms, including Apple, Spotify, and Google. Tune in to the latest episodes and learn more at hamiltonplacestrategies.com slash podcast. All right, we're back on the Macrocast. Um, uh, John and Brendan, what do we have looking forward to next week? Well, one of the things that the market is poised for is the uh, European Central Bank meeting. That's on Thursday. And uh, we got a little bit of a flash forward, perhaps, or a little bit of added intrigue this week when uh, the ECB, the European Central Bank chief economist, uh, came out and uh, mentioned uh, specifically that the strength of the single currency, the strength of the euro, is a factor in uh, their estimates for the reflationary outlook. And uh, that's not a big surprise. Uh, but the fact that uh, that he felt the need to come out and mention it specifically is uh, was not lost on uh, on market participants. The euro was knocking on the door of uh, you know more than two year highs of a dollar twenty on Tuesday, and uh, and after these after this commentary, it turned tail and and uh, and ran back down. Uh, it's come off uh, a little over a percent. Uh, over the past, over this week, which is a pretty meaningful move. It's down again versus the dollar. Uh, there's a sense that, you know, maybe the uh, the European Central Bank is is going to, if not, you know, specifically not target the currency, but, uh, but clearly put it as a prominent uh, factor in their decision making, maybe a little bit more of a dovish hint is coming next week. So, uh, so we've seen a little bit, uh, so we've seen some positioning ahead of that. Um, and uh, let's see, Brendan. What else is uh, what else is on the on the docket next week? It's Inflation Week, so we get the PPI and the CPI uh, for the U.S. Uh, and this one, it's for the August reading. Will will be kind of interesting because the first kind of three months of the lockdown was incredibly deflationary, and then you kind of had the math bounce back. So this is kind of the first one where we we should actually get a, a relatively good reading of exactly what inflation is like for the average American and business. Um, and what, what, do people care anymore? Do we care? Do we care what inflation? Unless no, not at all. Unless it's like it's completely irrelevant. <laughs> well, the Fed's tell, told you that too. You know, they're they're trying to make it go above two. Which, if you pull up a chart from 1990, we only pop above two percent on core like for a few months at a time. So, I, I've still never understood exactly why two percent is this magical number. Yeah, I know. It's not it's not magical for me either, but it is the but it is the target. And and again, like I just I just I just you know uh, the the target that you can't hit, you say you're willing to sustain it for a longer period of time. And so it's like yeah, yeah. You know, my my goal is to run a four minute mile, uh, and to prove it, I'm going to say I'm going to sustain a four minute mile for 
you know, uh, two miles. That's exactly what, yeah. Run a, a four-minute mile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a genius economist, but I can kind of look at numbers, and <laughs> you don't see two very often. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'd love to see them. Love to see them do it. It'd be, uh, I mean, you know, we'd love to see them have that that uh, that success. Uh, we'll look at the numbers next week and see if it's indicating that uh, uh, it's showing up in the in the real economy. We'd be good to see. Uh, even yeah, just- I mean, we've talked about it before. The sort of statistical issues with uh, with inflation, and yeah. you know, if you're flying a plane and you've got a whole dashboard full of dials, and you're focusing on you know one dial that might be stuck. <laughs> there's uh you know you can make the argument that there's you know a more holistic view is is appropriate but you know it's uh, obviously they've got the dual mandate and they're and they're focused on on uh um uh, in full employment as well but uh you know narrowing narrowing the focus in this kind of economic environment i think it, it it's it's a looking at one thing it's it's such a confusing picture to really focus on one thing is are it's simplicity and it's nice and it's clear but it's 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 pretty narrow. Thank yeah, you. we should do a whole uh, podcast if we want to lose a bunch of uh, listeners to the the quirks of the methodology of measuring <laughs> inflation. Right. We'd be like one of those go to sleep apps. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. The, the, the irony is the number of people who we know would love to actually be- they would love it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Yeah, that kind of show is like licorice. Most people don't like it, but the people that like it really like it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, hey guys. Well, we're gonna have a well a short week next week because it's yep. uh, Labor Day weekend. Uh, everybody enjoy your Labor Day weekend. Those of you who uh, are fortunate to be working, uh, we're on the good side of the numbers on that uh, that payroll report we saw this morning. Uh, but everybody have a wonderful long Labor Day weekend and get some rest. You're listening to the Macrocast. Thank you for listening to the HPS Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share.